Hallelujah. Yes, Father, this morning as we open our hearts to the call to worship, as we open our scriptures to hear from you and your communication, Lord, via the record of apostolic witness and the whole counsel of God, as we open up our memory to consider your faithfulness to us these last 12 months as the year turns on our calendar, as we open up, Lord Jesus, the perspective of history that your word gives us to see your sovereign hand from beginning to end, organizing every detail for the greatness of your glory and for the good of your people. We see, in fact, that to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, is nothing short of our reasonable and spiritual worship. I pray, Father, that this season and as this year dawns upon us, And as we recall your greatness, your faithfulness, your kindness, your mercy, your steadfast love, your sovereign hand, your holy purposes, and your future you have yet waiting for your people of eternal life secured by the very body and blood we celebrate today that's represented at your table. I pray as we consider these things that you would move us to grow in our call in sanctification and holiness and faithfulness and obedience to you that we might in turn grow your kingdom, that your name might go forth through your people and that the word of Jesus Christ would not just be contained in these pages, but in our heart and on our lips and in our actions, in our deeds as we go forth this day, as we go forth this year. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We have so many reasons to worship you with all our heart. We only confess as sin the weakness of our soul that fails to recognize them and pray as your word is proclaimed today that you would draw to our attention more reasons why you are glorious. Now, as we turn to your holy word, which is the rock and anchor of our understanding, which declares to us in truth who you are, which is the standard of righteousness whereby we see a vision for our own sanctification. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive its truth and open our minds to comprehend and open our mouths to testify as we grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in His name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Well, this morning, January 2nd, 2022, we welcome a new year. And as it's our first Sunday of the month, it also corresponds with the Lord's table, the celebration of communion represented in these elements here. And at the close of this message, for believers in the room who consider the significance of this meal and have searched your heart, if you are in good standing with the Lord, the table will be open to you. Thus, these opportunities presented by God's grace to us draw us close to Him and remind us of the rock and foundation of our souls, not just the foundation upon which to build our goals and plans for this new year. So I think it's fitting to have these elements come together today. Let us turn to God's Word this morning and consider 2 Peter chapter 2. If you would, as you're able, turn to 2 Peter 2, 1-10, which will be our primary text today. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of God's Scripture. The title of this morning's message is False Teacher Profile. 
You know what a profile is, don't you? It's a list of characteristics that give you an idea or set something apart. There's a list of characteristics of false teaching and false teachers that Peter gives us in these verses we'll consider today. The reason that he gives it is so that the church can be prepared against what might otherwise damage or harm or distract or derail the work of God in the culture in which he lived. And it strikes me that in our day, as we've often said, there are so many similarities that these words are equally relevant. And it's as if they were written yesterday for our benefit, I trust you will see. Therefore, the aim of this morning's message is to sharpen our spiritual faculties for war with false teaching. To sharpen our spiritual faculties so that we might declare victory over any arguments that would oppose the true counsel of God, the true word of the apostles, the prophets, and all who were commissioned by the Holy Spirit and inspired to record God's truth. So with your Bible and your heart open and out of reverence as you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's scripture this morning? As the congregation stands, we turn to 2 Peter 2, 1 through 10. Listen as the infallible word of the Lord is declared in your hearing today. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescues Lot, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> I see I forgot one phrase in verse 10. It concludes as follows, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. False teacher profile. I trust you heard as I proclaimed from the Scriptures this morning, Certain characteristics, adjectives, character traits that describe those who are a danger to the church and set themselves and their intentions, their goals, and their proclamation uh, towards selfish gain and really are in league with the devil's purposes of deceiving and exploiting the people of God and uh, casting a shadow of blasphemy upon the clear a proclamation of the holiness of our God and in so doing, represent a threat and perhaps one of the greatest threats to the church moving forward. The scriptures are clear with analogies like wolves in sheep's clothing that we need to have the discernment and awareness to tell 
when there is wickedness that is well disguised, that without discernment could easily derail the church. That is to say, if there is such a thing as wolves in sheep's clothing, we need to have our spiritual faculties exercised by reason of use, as the author of Hebrews says, to discern both good and evil so that we can tell the difference, even though, as that analogy, that picture, that illustration tells us, it's not always easy. So what are the ways that we can sharpen our abilities to tell the difference between what is false teaching and what is the true, rightly divided Word of God? Well, Peter equips the church with these kinds of tools. And as you'll recall, many of them were given to us in chapter 1, and now we see the great need for them in chapter 2. In the first chapter of Peter's epistle, he instructs the readers on how to strengthen their faith. Do you remember this? Turn back a page. In Peter, 1 Peter 1, verse 5, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Kids, maybe you remember this list we went over a number of times. What are we to supplement or fortify our faith with? Well, virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and finally, brotherly affection with love. Peter goes on in verse 8 to say, If these qualities are yours <coughs> and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter is giving instructions on how to be fortified and strengthened in your faith. So if the first chapter instructs readers how to strengthen their faith, it is clear that this is an urgent matter and a priority for the church, and uh, so much so that Peter himself vows to dedicate his remaining years to stirring up the church by way of reminder to this end. And in so doing, he outlines these seven qualities in verses 5 through 7, which will serve to supplement the faith of the church under trial. So if this is the overarching theme of chapter 1, primarily to, devoted to exhorting the church to fortify her faith, the second chapter details what we are to fortify ourselves against. In chapter 2, Peter outlines the nature of the enemy in our passage today with a goal to equip Christians to identify the false teaching as poisonous, and to stand against it in the truth of the apostolic word and the clarity of what Peter has delivered. The gospel verified by multiple witnesses, by corroborating testimony, by apostles like Peter, Paul, and the whole New Testament record, indeed the whole counsel of God. In our day, saints, it is worthy of note that the framework of our, as the framework of our culture, as far as I can tell, continues to disintegrate, and weaken, it creates many crisis moments for the soul. There's potential pitfalls for us to be freaked out, for us to be in fear, for us to sense maybe a response or reaction to panic. These kinds of times that we live in tend to render people particularly susceptible to error and false teaching. In a crisis, people are prone to panic. As in Peter's day, the pressures of the worldly environment could easily elicit <clears throat> spiritual desperation and then trigger a frantic search for answers. And for, perhaps in that day, people might run to the philosophers, the Stoics and Epicureans who sat at Mars Hill and thought about, all day about the meaning of life and could impress you with their words and their reasoning. Perhaps on a different day, out shopping in the market of ideas, they might stop by the philosophers who are practicing Stoicism or Epicureanism, 
who basically say, since there's no meaning in life, and since there is such a sharp distinction between the material and the immaterial, then the goal of life is just to enjoy, eat, drink, and be merry, all the pleasures that you can. Maximize your sensual good uh, in the short time that you have left. Or others might say, oh no, the real meaning of life is to be found in absolute stoicism, as little as possible, and embracing a life of aesthetic denial, ascetic denial, and so forth. And these were the ideas that were floating around. Or you might go down the street a little further and join a cult of the Gnostics who say they have a handle on some secret information that helps you understand and connect the dots of life, the future, the past, and reality as we experience it. And they've gleaned some information from the gurus of the East. And they've studied some of the ancient holy texts, which are mysterious and in a different language, but they happen to have the translation. And they mix that with some philosophy and some speculation, and they come up with a theory. These are all ideas that were circulating at the time. And these were ideas that the church needed to be warned about their consequences and equipped to recognize, take dominion of, and to uh, wrestle with, and to overcome triumphantly with the truth. This pertains, this calling is, uh, or this uh, duty of the church is corroborated, or the instructions are paralleled by other apostles. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, I believe, is that passage where Paul says that we are to cast down every imagination, high thing, and philosophy, and so forth, that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. Take it into captivity for the obedience of Christ. So that's a little background and context for the ideas of Peter in Paul's day. Well, today, the pressures of our worldly environment could easily also elicit spiritual desperation and a frantic search for answers. Just as a drowning man trades reason for fear as he thrashes about, accelerating his own demise, so a state of spiritual panic can cause us to uh, drown in the sea of confused messages that are popular in our day. And since we must soberly embrace the call to exercise discernment in times like these, it only seems fitting that we would open our new year with a warning and challenge in this regard. We must be aware that it is dangerous, that it is dangerous, uh, that the territory, uh, or the, that it is dangerous territory in the war of ideas these days, and we need to be challenged to exercise our spiritual discernment, our faculties, to divide good from evil, in spite of what Peter calls cleverly devised myths, promulgated, promulgated, yes, even in our context. And just a brief note on the sufficiency of God's word even though Peter's words that he wrote to the church to exhort and encourage him in this, this regard are 2,000 plus years old, yet incredibly timely as we read them, they serve to remind us of the sufficiency of God's word to equip us to be faithful to our task of discernment even today. So with that brief background and introduction, let me give you a heading and three points today. The heading is this, false teaching is... And false teachers are the following. Three descriptive words that summarize a number of aspects to the false teacher profile that I've chosen today. Those three words are deceptive, diabolical, and demeaning. False teachers are deceptive, diabolical, and demeaning. False teaching, likewise, is untruthful, deceptive, diabolical, wicked in intent, and demeaning. It belittles and puts down its hearers and belittles and puts down our Lord. 
So false teaching and false teachers are deceptive. This comes by way of the first phrase in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Again, that first phrase, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So first, false teaching is, and false teachers are deceptive. Uh, just a brief note in the structure of Peter's words in our message today. It is interesting to put side by side the seven virtues that Peter outlines and we went over at the beginning of this message alongside these seven characteristics or more of a false teacher profile. In other words, you could put it this way. Whereas false teaching is marked by falsehood, the believer fortified in his faith is marked by virtue, according to 1 Peter 1, verse 5. Virtue versus falsehood. So, deceptive. As we see here, this is nothing new, but there's a pattern since the fall. The enemy, Satan, whose name means accused, we're studying that in our family worship, or deceiver, one whose very job and the nature of his character is to not tell the truth, but to distort and to deceive and to falsify and to lie. As such, it stands to reason that through the ages, so far as the enemy has been active in influencing people, or at least attempting to, false prophets and false teachers are nothing new. The Bible records many examples for us, in fact, and Peter, and Peter uh, references a couple of them in the course of his words as well. Suffice it to say that false teaching is characterized by falsehood. That should be self-evident. Now, this is contrasted with that virtue I was telling you about before. Virtue, that first word that Peter says is a necessary fortification for our faith, can be defined, as you recall, moral excellence or moral vigor. What is virtue? Well, virtue is that which is in accord with the communicable attributes of God. Communicable attributes of God are those aspects of God's character and being that His creatures can share in. God is omnipotent. We are not. That is an incommunicable attribute. However, God is holy and we are called to be holy. That is a communicable attribute. God is loving and thus we are called to love. That is a communicable attribute. God is just. God is truthful. God never lies. God is merciful. God is gracious. All of these things are attributes, characteristics that uh, define the goal of our own sanctification. And when the scriptures say that we are being transformed into the image of Christ, these are the moral excellencies that we are being changed into. That as our life grows more in accord with Christ and the standard of His righteousness, Christ Himself being the ethical standard, the highest uh, embodiment, if you will, of all these moral excellencies, thus as we are transformed into His image, we display less falsehood and more honesty. We display less uh, vindictive behavior and more clarity and discernment. And, you know, and, so, and so it goes. This is a pattern that the author says has been 
has been obvious through the ages. He later illustrates this in verses 15 through 16. So if you go down to chapter 2, verse 15, Peter says this, Forsaking the right way, again speaking of these false teachers, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You remember this story, kids, where a donkey was listening to God more than the prophet was? The angel stood in front of the donkey. The donkey refused to move. The prophet, so to speak, uh, Balaam, got very angry, began to beat his animal, his means of transportation. And then the animal, the donkey, held him accountable, basically said, what are you doing? And really surprised him. There's three chapters devoted to this story of a false prophet trying to deceive God's people and failing because God is sovereign. If you want to read them on your own time, you can go over Numbers 22 through 24 and find the complete story of Balaam, Balak, the king who procured his services, the people of God, and the donkey who had a better spiritual sense than the prophet. Why are there three whole chapters dedicated to this incident? Well, I believe in part it becomes an archetype or it becomes a pattern or an example, a classic example of things that we need to be aware of as God's people moving forward. There are times like another example, by the way, is in Judges chapter 17, I think verses 7 through 13, just give an introduction. But if you're not too familiar with the story of Judges, there's some really interesting tales. And among them, during this time where there's no king to be found in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the word of God and obedience to him and his covenant was really languishing. A lot of colorful characters and a lot of horrific circumstances and sinful fallout was, became prevalent. And there's this dude named Micah, and one day a Levite, just a wandering guy, showed up at his doorstep. And simply because of his family birth, that is in the priestly line of Levite, Micah said, hey, I have an idea. How about this? I give you like 10 uh, pieces of silver and some clothing, and you can be my personal priest. There was a famous sermon. I found this one out through uh, Pastor Matt Trewella by another pastor's name. He was sort of an influential uh, missionary uh, individual in the last century, Paris Ridehead, R-E-I-D-H-E-A-D. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. He wrote a sermon, probably his most famous oratory. It was called Ten Shekels in a Shirt. And what that sermon really did is it, it isolated and applied a principle that once uh, the people, or once spiritual, uh, or the, the priestly duties of spiritual leadership are merely for sale, and those who are quote-unquote, serving in the priestly role. Today it could be a pastor, a minister, or the church, you know, institutionally constituted. You know, in these situations, once basically the primary motives are reduced to, hey, what will you give me for what you want to hear? And so itching ears are satisfied with a message that's tailored, you know, just to the demands of the culture of that day. And it's lost its prophetic clarity. It's lost its edge. It's been corrupted and so forth then you know that the, that the place has been overrun by false teachers and you live in a culture that has left God's law and the standard of righteousness and needs, and needs reform. So anyways, this falsehood that characterizes uh, prophets and teaching through the ages, we have examples of them at some length. Why? Because it's a perennial problem. 
It's a problem that always plagues the church and needs to be seen through the light of God's word, and we need to have the discernment to recognize it. To recognize it. According to the pattern through the ages, uh, later illustrated uh, by the example of Balaam, those verses we read in 15 and 16, Balaam's account covers you know, this long section. These passages provide a careful documentation, these two examples that we gave, they provide careful documentation to demonstrate by example a continual threat facing God's people. And thus, we need to recognize the false teacher profile. It's marked by falsehood in contrast to virtue. It's also marked by secrecy. In verse 1, the apostle goes on to declare, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there were false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So not just the quality of their information, which is false, <clears throat> but the means that they deploy to bring it in or to influence their followers is marked by sinfulness. And this secrecy, secretly bringing in destructive heresies, indicates their underhanded intentions. Now contrast this, if you would, with knowledge. We are to add to our faith virtue, and to our virtue secrecy? No. Underhanded, conniving, sneaky ways? No. Cleverly devised myths? No. We are to fortify our faith by virtue and by knowledge. Now, knowledge, boldly proclaimed and fully disclosed in the public square, in the pulpit, and in the lives and confession and testimony of all true believers, is a mark and characteristic of a healthy church. The kingdom of God is marked in every age, not by sneaking around and by secrecy and manipulation. No, not by tricking people to make a decision for Christ by psycho psychological tricks and just mere you know, persuasive tactics. No, the word of God is to be declared boldly, truthfully, and that knowledge is to be proclaimed in spite of whether or not the people are willing and ready to hear. This is where the church goes wrong in so many cases. Evangelism is not clever persuasion to trick somebody into following Christ. Have you ever heard of Pascal's wager? Maybe you've used this reasoning before. But it's an example of something that's kind of borderline sketchy, right? So someone would say, listen, you should repent and turn to Jesus. After all, what do you have to lose? If you die and it turns out there's no heaven, you know, all you've done is tried to live a better life. What's really wrong with that? But if you die and it turns out there is a heaven, then whoo, you know, you can wipe the sweat off your brow. I took Pascal's wager and I'm sure glad I did. Turns out God is actually real. Now you might lay out that argument. Is that evangelism according to the knowledge of the scriptures? Well, it might have, you know, you might use it to make a rhetorical point. And maybe it's good as far as it goes. But I would encourage you to set that kind of reasoning and that kind of technique aside entirely. Why? Because when you're calling someone to repent and to believe, it's not a wager on the probability factors of what might possibly happen in the future. No, it's a proclamation with absolute certainty that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Be careful that you don't uh, fall into this trap in proclaiming the knowledge of the gospel by implying that maybe it's not true, or what do you have to lose? Why? Because it can undermine the validity, the certainty, the power, and the authority of the Word of God. 
I challenge you to look in the scriptures and see where the apostles would use this kind of reasoning. They did not. They knew they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ, and no one was going to tell them otherwise. Oh, I don't believe you. Well, did that shake their confidence? Of course not. They had seen Jesus Christ, Peter himself, James and John, at the Mount of Transfiguration, shining in all his pre-incarnate glory. No one was going to talk them out of preaching with authority. Have you seen Jesus revealed? Has he awakened your heart to behold him? I submit to you that his word is a sufficient revelation so that you never need to doubt the reality, the truth, the absolute certainty of the word of God ever again. Preach that way. Share that way. We're not people who secretly smuggle things in and twist and manipulate and try to persuade through some complicated psychological techniques. We are people who have seen the risen Christ through the eyes of faith, whose hearts have been opened to the declaration of the same, the Word of God, and know without a shadow of a doubt, because the Holy Spirit has resurrected our once dead heart, that Jesus Christ lives. And so we should proclaim it without equivocation, without qualification. We should proclaim it boldly with authority. This is the difference between false teaching or teaching that is false. You could say not every person who is an error is necessarily a false teacher. We should all grow in our correct, you know, in the proper ways to proclaim the gospel. But nevertheless, if our ministry or heart is characterized through and through by this profile of a false teaching, then of course that does, that would make someone a false teacher. And among these things is, is, uh, error, and <clears throat> secrecy. A third, and that would be, those two things are under deception. So again, false teaching and false teachers are characterized by falsehood and secrecy. And then major point number two, false teaching and false teachers are characterized by the diabolical. What do I mean by diabolical? Well, demonic, not well-meaning, not sincere. Diabolical is malevolent by intention. Paul's teaching is characterized by this. Again, in verse 1 of 2 Peter 2, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Peter does not mince any words, but he points out that false teaching is characterized by a diabolical intention and content. Uh, false teaching and false teachers are anti-Christ. They are against the Lord. It says here, they, in fact, that they are teaching and their intent is to deny the master who bought them. That is to say, they may count themselves among the confessing believers, but in reality, they're just using that association to come in and to do damage. And their teaching, in fact, does not glorify Christ or submit to him, but in fact is blasphemy. It's claiming something of Christ that he never claimed for himself, or it's denying something of Christ that he declared was absolutely part and parcel of who he was. They deny the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Later on, it speaks that there, uh, in this chapter, or verse 2, they will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. First of all, Antichrist. Now again, we contrast the Antichrist undermining Jesus and who he is with the third, <clears throat> or is it the fifth here, quality that Peter says we should reinforce our faith with, godliness. 
In other words, on the one hand, with the false teachers and the false teaching, it is antichrist. It undermines Christ and His authority. On the other hand, for those whose faith is strengthened and fortified, we are called to godliness. These two are in opposition to one another. <clears throat> the antichrist teacher, the false teacher, even though they may not even realize it fully, are anti-Jesus. They're denying the one who bought them. In other words, their heresies uh, include <clears throat> uh, characterizing Jesus uh, in, some, in a different way than he is revealed in the, in the scriptures. Um, today, it strikes me, and this is just in my experience, kind of listening to podcast world, as I sometimes call it, the decline of our culture is making for some strange co-belligerence. I've listened to some podcasts where it strikes me that I can almost have solidarity with someone who is, say, you know, to use the modern categories, a classical liberal, that is, they believe in things like free speech and individual liberties, but they seek to uh, speak about and celebrate their liberty in their homosexuality. Now, there may be an individual like this who opposes the same enemy I do, I'm for individual liberty, and I am against, I believe it's an ungodly position, the monopoly on speech taken by big tech organizations and the government and so forth. Why? Well, because I'm a Christian preacher. I'm a minister of the gospel who says that shame on you if you should deem it illegal or culturally inappropriate, either politically incorrect or legally incorrect to share the words of life with the people of God. So I am for free speech so that the word of Jesus Christ can go freely as possible to proclaim repentant belief to this culture. Well, there are others out there who endorse that same value. They want free speech as well, but why do they want it? And you see this is where we get into a divide. It's interesting, we need discernment. What unites us and what divides us has everything to do with our relationship to Jesus Christ. That is primary, that is ultimate. We must be careful to remember that. We might have provisional goals that actually align with unbelievers in the culture war, as a so-called, you know, so-called culture war today. And as far as it goes with discernment, you know, we might be fighting for the same thing, and providentially, maybe we can praise God for that. But we must not forget, again, that the basis of true fellowship and the basis of true revival the basis of true unity, true community, and true health for a people, a nation, a society, for the globe, for our city, for our church, for our families, is based upon our relationship with Jesus Christ. If we elevate something higher than our relationship with Jesus Christ as the point of unity with our culture or with someone else and so forth, what are we doing? We're blaspheming our Lord. Why? Because our God is a jealous God, and He deserves to be primary in our affections, primary in our priorities. He is the one who we have first and foremost allegiance with. So we need to be careful in days as confusing and corrupt as we have today that we not forget this. Because anything that is not first and foremost for the glory of Jesus Christ is diabolically antichrist at core. The decline of culture provides a lot of opportunities for us to witness this. You know, the presumptuous notions 
of our day, oftentimes, and, you know, who is Jesus? You might ask somebody that, and they tell you their opinion and what they appreciate Jesus for. That can be a very interesting conversation. I've said it this way in the past. So oftentimes Jesus is reduced to the mascot of somebody's default worldview. In other words, these are things that are important to me. These are things that I think are values and virtues. This is what I appreciate about Jesus. And really what someone is doing is giving you their opinion and projecting it onto Jesus. This is not what Jesus is for. This is blasphemy if this is all that Jesus is to us culturally. He's just a mascot for our opinions, our preferences, our experience, our worldview. Oh, I love Jesus because he loved everybody. It was not judgmental, you know. And I remember someone gave me a book to read, an unbeliever, one of those coffee shop conversations. He said, hey, this book I thought was really profound. Why don't you read it and see what you think? And it was called Jesus, the Pedagogue of the Oppressed. Doesn't that sound like kind of a liberal title? Well, it was a liberal book. Basically, what it sought to do is to make the case that primarily the purpose of Jesus' parables was liberation theology, to set people free from their oppressors, not the oppression of sin. That was nowhere to be found in this doctrinal thesis. No, not the oppressing uh, a situation that separates us from a holy God, but no, the oppressors politically and socially and you know, so on and so forth. It's not to say that those things aren't a factor and don't fall with the dominoes of the Christian worldview at some point. In other words, because Jesus is Lord of everything, kings must bow before him, and they are in sin if they are to oppress their people. I grant that. However, Jesus Christ is not a mascot for the, liber uh, for the, uh, the, the liberation theologian who sees his primary purpose more Marxist than anything else not content until everybody owns the same property and everybody has equal opportunity and outcome and outcomes and so on and so forth. You see, what makes CRT, critical race theory, or these other popular views, ideologies, and philosophies out there blasphemous is because, because they take Jesus and their concept of him and they make him the mascot of some distorted or twisted or ungodly or worldly view of things. And Jesus Christ will not have this. This is blasphemy. This is antichrist. It is diabolical. And until Jesus Christ is high and lifted up, enthroned upon the praises of his people and in the consciousness of our nation, we must point him out as the standard of righteousness and declare that before him you either bow willingly now or your knees will be broken later. Nevertheless, in time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus Christ is to be elevated. He's not to be manipulated. He's, he is to be proclaimed as the standard. He's not to be co-opted for our preferences. Jesus Christ is to be worshipped and glorified. He's not to be the servant secondarily to some other idol. And this is where we need discernment, among other things. False teaching is diabolical in that it's antichrist. It's diabolical in that it's self-destructive. Balance this with self-control. These are opposites, aren't they? For those who are fortifying their faith, we are called to add to our virtue, our faith virtue and knowledge and self-control. Self-control is being able to be self-governed and self-regulated, things held together when the pressure and the trials are on. Self-destructive is the opposite. And of course, the self-destructiveness of false teaching 
is in two parts. First, it just falls apart because it can't be held together by virtue of its own frailty. But secondly, it falls apart because God brings active judgment upon it. They deny the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality and because of the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. It says later in verse 3b, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. In other words, God does not overlook the false teaching and the false teachers. And even if it seems like they get away with it for a while, the condemnation is not idle. From the ages past, through the whole counsel of God's word, that which he proclaims in judgment for those who violate his law stands. That indictment, that lawsuit, that summons to the court of glory stands. Their destruction is not asleep. That warrant is out for the arrest of the person who misrepresents Jesus Christ in their heart and in their proclamation. And that warrant will be served. It will be served for everyone upon their death, at least, but, and for many long before, as the consequences of their sin and the, the self-destruction and the judgments of God catch up to them for their diabolical misrepresentation of Him. In spite of how pervasive errors are, Nevertheless, these ideas and cultures that are built upon them, they disappear relatively quickly. Think of last week, we talked about the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this war rages yet today. And I have identified two aspects of that war. The devil is at war with Jesus Christ. And before the incarnation, it was a war of prevention, a preventative war, preemption, I should say. It's a preemptive campaign to kill the womb that might possibly bear the Son of God, or to kill the Son of God before he had a chance to assume his throne, hence Herod and his extermination holocaust campaign in Bethlehem. Now after the incarnation, Jesus has come, his work is complete, it is finished, he proclaimed it on the cross. Nevertheless, the devil is at war with the seed of the woman still. But now the war is a war of attrition to limit by all possible measures the success and the rewards of the Messiah's suffering. That is to say, it makes sense that the devil is at war with children, the seed of the woman and the fruit of the womb. Hence, abortion and every other anti-child, anti-life uh, value that is prevalent in our culture. How long can a culture stand? How long can they survive if they do not value the next generation? Not long. One generation or two at the birth replacement rates pitifully low in the West, and you'll see a culture in decline replaced with another. Why? Because diabolical false teaching is self-destructive. God places great value on that in which He has invested His image. Human beings, He has placed such high value in them that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in their place, that as they repent and believe, they might be the rewards of his suffering and come into that. And hence, I'm thankful to be involved with the church here who values children and has families that are seeking to raise their children in the nurture and admission of the Lord. And for those who faithfully do so, it may seem like a thankless task behind the scenes, but they in the end will own the future. Why? Because the diabolical false teaching is self-destructive, but the paths of righteousness lead to life. And this is the faith-filled statement upon which we should build a home, a church, a vision, a worldview, 
and a standard of repentance that we proclaim to a world lost in their trans trespasses and sins. Finally, the false teaching under diabolicals Wicked in that it's antichrist, it's self-destructive, but it's also sensual. This means relating to one's senses, of course, and their appetites are sinfulness, the flesh. Verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. So you see kind of a contrast there, or the way of truth versus sensuality. When sensuality is elevated, seeking your own pleasure according to the appetites of the flesh, then what is the consequence? the way of truth, the uh, righteous, the virtuous, the praiseworthy, the holy, and the laudable, they become blasphemed. And this is where we are at in so many ways in our culture. Now, contrast this with the steadfastness that Peter calls the church to fortify herself with. God's word doesn't change. <clears throat> God wasn't against homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah and is tolerant now because he's so loving. Although many apostate so-called churches would have you believe such a thing, by the way, in two Sundays, I believe, on the 16th, there's, I don't know the exact name for it, but pastors, it's come to my attention that pastors in Canada have called for biblically convicted pastors in the United States and elsewhere to join them in something like a biblical sexuality solidarity Sunday. Why? Because Canada just passed with the unanimous approval of both the conservative and whatever the party structure is up there unanimously just approved in recent weeks a complete ban against so-called conversion therapy. In other words, depending on how you read the law, it's broad enough to deem illegal even a message from a pulpit in a public forum such as a Sunday gathering that says homosexuality is a sin and God has not ordained same-sex attraction as normative for His created worldview. And although in our fallenness and in the wickedness of our flesh, we might be tempted to embrace all kinds of self-destructive and anti-scriptural and, uh, anti lifestyles that are sinful and transgression of His holy law, we must turn from our sins and uh, acknowledge God's standard of one man and one woman till death do them part, as Jesus Himself proclaimed in Matthew 19. Anyways, long and short of it is, as of January 16th, that will be technically, quote-unquote, illegal in Canada this year. So, what we're going to do about it as pastors is everybody preaches the truth, who's so convicted and joins with this cause on that Sunday, proclaiming that God's Word stands. And that the sensuality of our day is in, uh, should not recast or twist or characterize the scriptures in some perverse sense. No. What is it? It's going to be either the way of truth upheld or the way of truth blasphemed. And it depends on your values. Do you value sensuality, your sinful appetites, and embracing and affirming them? Or do you say that with the fallen sinful state of man, we are all born as trespassers and sinners, and we must repent and turn to the Lord and uphold His immutable standard of righteousness that, and by which we measure ourselves falling short and seek forgiveness through Jesus Christ and His blood alone. You see, what happens if sensuality is, is uh, pursued without uh, and, and elevated as a priority value in culture, it leads invariably to blasphemy. Maximum personal pleasure, according to our sinful fleshly appetites, is pursued or, and judged by the senses 
will always lead to the profaning of the truly holy. Now, there are two ways of looking at this. Maximum pleasure as judged by the senses, limited by our, uh, uh, which is sensuality, but there's another kind of sensuality, and that is the claim that truth is limited to our perception and our empirical experience. In other words, if we can't experience something with our senses in the laboratory, on empiricism, on materialism, we say that it is not true. In both cases, pursuing maximum pleasure according to our senses or limiting our understanding of truth by our perception and reasoning and senses, both of these are blasphemous and lead to blasphemy. Both of these exclude the category of revelation altogether, that God has spoken by His Word, independent, independent of us. And it stands with authority to judge every man falling short, and we must repent. The effect of false teaching is that the clear and consistent message of Scripture is not just casually disregarded but, or ignored, but it becomes blatantly profaned, mocked, and abused, and derided. In other words, you know that you are in a sensual culture if people begin to mock and reject the following. The exclusive claims of the gospel. The divinity of Jesus Christ. Substitutionary atonement. Creation and the created order. Marriage and God's design for human sexuality. Sin as a category. God's law as a standard. His wrath as a reality of His character and nature. His justice. His final day of reckoning. His sovereignty. All of these are questioned these days, quite popularly so. And the whole so-called deconstruction movement or phenomenon among quote-unquote evangelicals testifies to this. It's, another, it's a creative way to apostatize, to leave your once-confessed faith. And what will you leave it for? You will leave it for the priorities of a sensual culture, elevating the things that you would love to pursue in the flesh or, or saying that because of our uh, the nature of things as humans and reality, God has not spoken. These things are diabolical and demonic. They are not well-meaning. They are not sincere. They are antichrist, self-destructive, and sensual. And we, in contrast to these, are called to fortify our faith with godliness, self-control, and steadfastness. This brings us to our final point this morning. False teaching is and false teachers are demeaning. And this one I'll just touch on very briefly as our time is limited. And we'll pick up on more of this message and Peter's instructions later. Suffice it to say in verse 3 we read this, And in their greed, false teachers, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. And then we have, we'll save this for another sermon as well, three examples of how God intervened in the case of wickedness. Angels who sinned against him, the days of Noah and the ancient world, Sodom and Gomorrah and the consequences. Nevertheless, God saves righteous Lot. In this argument, Peter gives four if statements and follows them with a then. He says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, verse 9, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And then notice verse 10, and especially those who indulge the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. False teaching and false teachers are demeaning. They exploit their hearers. 
They profit at the expense of those who listen to their words. If you follow the dogma and the so-called message of freedom and liberation and of finding yourself and tolerance and virtue, the social virtues, the virtue signaling stuff, you know, that's put out there in our day, if you follow them, you will be burned out, exploited, lied to, and it will be your undoing. This is the opposite of brotherly affection. False teachers are like parasites. They cling to their host and suck them dry in order to better themselves. This is not what biblical leadership or biblical ministry looks like. It's biblical ministry is totally the opposite. It's laying your life down for the benefit of another. I think all of us understand this who are married, don't we? If we just look to our spouse as a, another toy in our toy box, men, how demeaning is that? You know, I've got a four-wheeler, I've got a boat, and I've got a hot wife. That is demeaning. That is objectifying. That does not elevate or acknowledge the virtue and the beauty and the dignity of your spouse. No, it reduces them just a tool to a tool for your own self-advancement. Biblical love, brotherly affection is not like this. We learn how to love from Jesus who first loved us, who gave himself as a ransom for many who set aside his glorious prerogative and took on flesh and became a man. And as we celebrate this season in the incarnation, took on the veil and the cloak of humanity to give of himself, though he did not deserve it, to take upon his flesh that which we deserve, to bear on his stripes, bruises, broken, bleeding body, and crown of thorns, the punishment that you and I deserve. This is what true love is. True love isn't being free to pursue as many and varied sexual partners or weird lifestyles as you possibly could want, desire, or imagine, and your perverted fantasies. That is not love, and neither is tolerating that. It's self-destructive behavior that leads to a parasitic situation that ultimately leads to death. All sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. False teaching and false teachers are demeaning. They exploit the hearers. They're motivated by greed, wielding as an instrument their false words. And this is in stark contrast to the humble self-giving exemplified in Jesus Christ and the incarnation. We are not like this if you're a true believer. You are called and recognized brotherly affection, and it's distinct from the exploitation of the false teachers out there. False teaching is characterized by defiling passion, Whereas we are called, as Peter says, to add to our faith love. This is why the moral collapse and false, this is why moral collapse and false teaching so often go hand in hand. True biblical love holds out the objects, the object of the affections as sacred, as we said before, as dignified, and there's sanctity to it. That's what true biblical love. Defiling passions of sin, profane and objectify and desecrate the object of one's attention. And this, why, this is why marriage is being profaned. This is why the gospel is being profaned and desecrated. Why? Because these are things that God has deemed as holy and set apart and sacred and to be esteemed. They have dignity, value, and worth as he has ordained it. But if we pursue our, our defiling passions, our base desires, what happens? We become unreasoning. Peter goes on in verse 12 to say these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, <clears throat> born to be caught and destroyed, are blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. 
what's the difference between animals and reasoning human beings? Nothing, according to the values of our culture. According to the standard of God's word, everything. The image of God, the calling of righteousness, the ability to discern right from wrong, the responsibility as a moral agent to live in light of his truth, to recognize when the gospel standards proclaim that you've fallen short, to turn from your sin and trust Jesus to pay for it, and then begin to walk in a manner worthy of the call, to seek the Lord and ask him to give you a love and desire for the things that are holy and in accordance with his communicable attributes, and to reject and to despise and to recognize as sinful and defiling the passions of the flesh. Finally, false teachers in this demeaning category despise authority. They're not only demeaning of those whom they seek to influence and manipulate, but they're also demeaning of Jesus Christ himself. As we've said a number of times, their greed uh, exploits their followers with false words. But the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials, especially, and not only this, but to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in lust and defiling passion and despise authority. <clears throat> when God says, thou shalt not, and you say, I shall, you are despising authority. This is demeaning of Christ. They refuse to acknowledge and submit to his terms and his righteousness. And in pursuing their defiling passions and their false teaching, their false notions and false ideas, they embrace blasphemy and promote blasphemy, motivated by failure to submit to authority. Motivated in these things, they, they fail to submit to authority. And, and so many things these days fall into this category, including radical feminism and egalitarianism that seeks to erase all of God's hierarchical standards of biblical order that stem from his very nature. And in theology, what's called the economic trinity itself, where God has ordered things in a particular way. Well, in pursuit of what we would prefer to be as God, according to the lie in the beginning, we are willing in this culture, and some so-called Christians have embraced this as well, to recast reality in our own image so that we can pursue defiling passions and exploit the hearers in the process and despise the authority of Jesus Christ all the while. So this is what Peter is giving us. He's giving us a profile by which to understand and to judge and to discern false teaching and false teachers. They are deceptive, diabolical, and demeaning. And I hope as we see the danger and the pitfalls, and also as we judge the influences potentially around us according to the standard, that our sense of awareness and warning is raised. And if it is, and if you are a true believer, then what's next, what arises next is, Lord, help me to be fortified and strengthened against this. That would be the next natural desire if the Lord is using this as intended. Peter says in verse 13 of chapter 1, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. That's how serious and important this call of embracing righteousness and discerning wickedness is. Peter reiterates this calling or this commitment in chapter 3, verse 1. And he also incorporates the, uh, the goal of his first letter, as he describes it in this, chapter, or in this verse as well. 
He says, 3.1, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. These are things that Peter points us to and says he will give the rest of his days sufficient statement for his ministry to remind us if we identify with his early hearers, to remind us of. What things does he remind us of? Well, those fortifications in chapter 1, things to strengthen our faith. And here's the second, and here's an additional thought as well. He wants to remind us not only of the things that he's said, but the commandments of our Lord and Savior, the word of Jesus that we've received through his apostles. Among these commandments from Jesus and the apostles is the Lord's table today. And as we transition to communion, we recognize from Peter's teaching that right here are implements of war. That in the vision for the Lord's table, our spiritual faculties can be sharpened for us to go to war effectively and triumphantly with false teaching, and deceptive claims, and that which otherwise would divert, distract, and destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Let's close with one more reference from the first epistle, 1 Peter 1, 17-21. Turn there with me in closing as you're able. 1 Peter 1, 17-21. The apostle writes, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. So these are those commandments of the Lord by way of apostles that he is pointing us to. Fear the Lord throughout your time of exile. Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. What are those feudal ways? That would be the things that we've discussed today, that which characterizes false teaching. And we have, been, uh, inher- we have been ransomed from these, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Lest you fear that you would be corrupted and pulled in and sucked in to basically the undercurrent of our blasphemous, sensual culture, know that you have means to stand in a day like the early church when your faith is challenged. But you do so not with silver and gold, things that you could purchase or your tangible experience. You do so recognizing how precious the blood of Jesus truly is. In the Lord's table, we return to the priority and the power of the gospel. The recognition that the shed blood of Jesus Christ frees us from the curse that hung over our head because of transgressing God's law. And it frees us to be new creatures in Him. Thus, we embrace sanctification being conformed into His image. And it trains us as we embrace His means, the preached word, study of the same, prayer, fasting, spiritual disciplines, the Lord's table, worshiping and gathering together, baptism, these different things that God ordains for us as touchstones for our faith. These are the things that God prescribes as supplements for our faith, along with those other things like virtue, knowledge, self-control, godliness, and so forth the moral excellencies of Jesus Christ, the communicable attributes of a holy God. So this morning, 
The word has been proclaimed, and now as it's portrayed at his table, I encourage you to consider these things necessary weapons to sharpen your discernment and to strengthen your faith to oppose the false teaching of our day. And let us pray that God will use these means to fortify us as people that we might stand, not just survive, but to boldly proclaim the truth and to see people come to that knowledge of truth as he would be gracious to give us uh, success in our evangelistic call. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for this opportunity we have to strengthen ourselves for the calling that we have this day. We know that it is not of ourselves that we are strengthened. Instead, our steps of obedience themselves are the grace of God working on our heart for what and to embrace what you have sovereignly provided. The ministry of your word, our prayers being heard by our advocate and high priest, Jesus, who mediates between us and the heavenly father. And today, the precious blood that he shed and his broken body sufficient for the remission, for the payment of our sin that is represented at your table. As we approach these things today, as we embrace them as weapons for our souls to be strengthened, encouraged, for us to discern and to stand, I pray that the fruit following this service would be faithfulness and courage as you call us this year to be bold and to proclaim the truth come what may. May you be glorified in the remainder of our service. In Jesus' name, amen.